completed in 1779, the iconic Iron Bridge across the Severn Gorge in Shropshire was the first single-span bridge in the world to be built entirely in cast iron. Until then, bridges and indeed most buildings had been constructed in wood and stone. So how did these visionary men with limited experience of working in cast iron actually build this wonder of the new industrial world? This is a question which has fascinated industrial archaeologists, historians and engineers for decades. Among them is David DeHaan. Until 2012, David was Senior Curator and Director of Learning at the Ironbridge Gorge Museum Trust, and he has spent decades examining contemporary records and the structure itself to discover how the Iron Bridge was built. Here is his expert analysis. I've crossed the Iron Bridge and come down underneath it on the towpath, so I'm standing within the ironwork. Towpath is open to anybody, so you can get down here and you can get close enough to see the nature of the construction, the joints. This is five parallel frames, 100 foot span, and rising about 50 feet above the water level at the crown. The normal way of making an iron casting is to make a full-size wooden model of the piece you want, to push that wood into the sand of the foundry floor, pack the sand around it, lift the wood out and fill the space that's left behind with molten iron. So you get a copy of the wooden form now in solid cast iron. Because the top was left open to the air, actually only three sides of that casting touched the sand. It means that the side, the bottom and the other side are clean and neat, but the top surface has got bubbles as the gases rose. And you can see that very clearly down here. You can see good surfaces and atrocious surfaces, and they tell you which way up the various bits was cast. The big semicircle of the arches are actually made in two pieces of almost six tonnes in weight each. They didn't make a piece of wood the size of the full semicircle. They just simply made a short piece, maybe five or six feet long. And having taken a piece of wood and string and scratched on the foundry floor the semicircle of the right diameter, they then placed this short piece of wood against that curve, packed the sand around it, picked up the piece of wood, moved it along, and packed some more around, and basically built up the big piece in lots of small sections. Every now and again they needed a detail, a joint, and so they added another small bit of wooden pattern in the right place to make those kind of details. But by and large, it means that everyone is handmade and every frame is different. Various bits that slotted into them therefore had to be modified and made to fit. This is not a flat pack. It's very much made up as you go along. And bear in mind, there was no precedent for this. The bridge is a 100-foot span. It weighs 387.5 tonnes of cast iron. We know the figures because when the bridge was being built, the ironmaster, Abraham Darby, arranged to have views of it engraved. And along with those views, you got a free engineering drawing, and that includes a ruler and dimensions, and even statements about how 
big it was and particularly fascinatingly a comment about how the erection went up without any damage to the work or the workmen. We do know that that's a slight exaggeration because a local printer, John Edmonds, described it in slightly more detail and he says without any material accidents. I wonder what material accident qualified in 1780. Notwithstanding the great weight of the several pieces which form these arches, many of them containing more than six tonnes of metal, the height to which they were raised, the difficulty with which they were fixed into the several mortises, etc., prepared for them, the whole was conducted with such care and skill that not any material accident happened either to the men or work. 378 and a half tonnes is actually massively over-designed. When the county surveyor, Thomas Telford, had to replace the medieval bridge upstream of here at Bilbos in 1796. He did that by building an iron bridge that was 130 foot span, so bigger than this one, and only 176 tonnes. Our iron bridge here was subject to the most serious flood on record on the 12th of February 1795 when the medieval Bildwas Bridge was washed away. Every bridge in Shropshire was damaged or destroyed apart from the Iron Bridge. So Telford came from his Shrewsbury office to look at the Iron Bridge and see why it had so magnificently withstood the flood. And it's from that that he had the confidence to build cast iron bridge at Bildwas in the new material. And from that point on, the Culbertdale Company start doing rather well in bridge orders. But prior to that, nobody really trusted this newfangled bridge. The materials were not understood, not trusted. This area is known as Telford, the new town of Telford. And people are therefore convinced that the Iron Bridge was built by Thomas Telford. But we know that the Iron Bridge was designed by Thomas Farnell Spritchard and was built by Abraham Darby. Telford doesn't get a look in. Now the reason for Telford's name for the region is because the main road, the Hollyhead Road, the A5, runs through the region. There are some churches here by Thomas Telford and most importantly he was the county surveyor for Shropshire so he had involvement in many of the bridges. Other people think that Isambard Kingdom Brunel designed the bridge. It couldn't have been, he wasn't born until 1807 and this bridge went up in 1779. No, it's Pritchard and Derby, not Telford nor Brunel. While looking at the early pictures of the bridge, I noticed in a couple of cases an oddity. A part of the bridge that's there now seemed to be missing, and it's at the level I'm standing now on the towpath. It's from about knee level up to a couple of feet above my head, and it's near the back wall, and I was curious, so I undertook a very scientific test. I took out a coin and I tapped various parts of the bridge, including the bit that was missing on the engravings, but clearly is there today. And what I discovered was that every part of the bridge, wherever you are on it, rings solid metal, apart from the bits that were apparently missing. The reason for the difference in those sounds is because the dull sound is an original piece of iron and the hollow sound is a piece that was added later. The early engineering drawing shows it being there, 
but the archives confirm that actually it wasn't put in place until 10 years after the bridge was open. So why wasn't it there and why is it hollow? I think the reason it's hollow is because they knew it wasn't structural. It hadn't been necessary for 10 years, therefore it was only cosmetic. And they could save on the amount of iron by making it hollow. But why wasn't it there? Well, we're in the gorge and boats were hauled up river, usually by horse. And at this point, the horse would have to come through a fairly narrow path underneath the bridge. And we wondered whether these bits of iron were missing originally so that the horse had more room to get through along the towpath. You can see rope burns in the ironwork, which confirm that ropes are used to drag the boats upriver. In practice, in the gorge, horses weren't used on the towpath. A local team of men would haul the boat up, known as bow hauliers, and they would hire themselves out. And men didn't need as much space as horses, and we think that's why the missing pieces were added later on to complete the symmetry, the visual arrangement of the bridge, and why they weren't structural. The rope burns are clearly evident on various parts of the island. The rope from the haulers has got wet, it's dragged against the iron. Once that boat was gone, that bit of exposed iron would perhaps go rusty, and the next time a rope came and fell into that same groove, it would drag away the flakes of rust and gradually, over time, eat into it. So we've got 100, 150 years of ropes cutting into iron, visible on canal bridges as well. It's very strong and it's very evident here on the iron bridge. If iron is left unpainted, it goes rusty, and that has always been known. So the bridge was painted pretty much from the outset and painted dark grey, which is why it's dark grey today. The archival evidence proves that that was the colour. And it needs several coats. The last ones I have archival evidence for, 1950 were three coats, 1980 they went right back to bare metal and put seven coats on. And in 1999, they discovered that the 1980 job was so good, they just applied two more top coats. All that is getting to the end of its life and is in 2017 going to be stripped back to bare metal and repainted again. So throughout 2017, from spring onwards, the bridge will be scaffolded and with luck, there will be some scaffold tours and people can actually get close up and personal with some of these wonderful joints. The joints are those that you would recognise as a carpenter. They're mortise and tenons, they're dovetails, they're wedges. That, for the period, was not unusual. If you were able to go up into the tower of a cathedral or a big church and it has a clock with medieval clockwork, you'll find the frame of the clock is made up of iron joined together with wedges, pins, mortars and tenons and dovetails. So that was the normal way of linking iron together for hundreds of years. Here, though, we can see it much larger scale and close up. Part of the repair work when the bridge is scaffolded is to take up the road material, the asphalt. It's about a foot 30 centimetres thick and it sits on top of cast iron plates that run the entire width of the bridge. Originally the road material was clay mixed with slag and it used to have to be topped up 
all the time. The rain and the wind would wash it away and you would top it up. That's in the 1970s, was replaced by a lightweight aggregate. But before they laid it down, 1975, they sealed every gap between the deck plates. These are big deck plates. They are 28 feet long, so they overhang each end, and they are three feet wide and almost two inches thick. So each of them weighs around two tons. Three feet wide meant that there are lots of joints, and at every joint in 1975, they put a strip across it to seal it. So the whole thing was one continuous unit. Then they covered it up with a rogue material. Now what's happened over time is when it rains, water percolates through down to that deck plate and can't actually escape. So it runs down the slopes of the bridge in either direction and then trickles down the abutments and has an effect on damaging the stone. So that's going to be taken up. They're going to open up the cracks again, which will let the bridge drain freely. Until they do that, if you come underneath a bridge and stand on a towpath, you can get dripped on. It's quite possible you can get a drip of water coming from above, even though it hasn't rained for a fortnight, because that bridge is holding water like a sponge. It's an unnecessary extra weight on the bridge, and one that would be good to get rid of. The bridge is cast then in open sand moulds, and every part is different. And you can spot an oddity. On one of the days when they were casting the ribs, it was obviously raining. It was damp. And the string that they used to scribe the arc in the sand had actually shrunk. One of the ribs is cast at a different diameter to all the others. And if you're on the towpath and you look up to about 20 feet above your heads, you can see on what is now called frame D, that's the fourth one from the upstream end, pieces of iron that dip at an angle compared with all the others being straight. And that angle shows up because there's a 1926 repair above it, which is a straight steel strap, and the dipping iron castings against the straight one are clearly evident. People used to think that the bridge had cracked, it had fallen, it had slipped, it was going to fall down. But actually, no, it was built like that. And because it's the wrong size, all the little bits around it have been made to a different standards in order to pick up the extra amount needed. From the towpath level, if you look across the river, the stone abutment as it rises out of the water is only stone for the top three courses because below that there's a big slab of reinforced concrete. And that's the visual evidence of the 1973 and 4 concrete strut that was put under the river to hold the two sides apart. It went in in two halves because it was done in a coffer dam and that was a dam that would obstruct the river and you had to let the river flow past. It was done during the summer when the water is at slackest but nevertheless there was still a fair bit of damage caused by floods during the works process. And the strut now holds safely the two abutments apart and they resist that sliding movement of the gorge as it tries to get narrower. So although we've seen movement from each side towards the centre, the bridge is actually safe because effectively it's a complete circle. The iron over the top, the concrete underneath. So this bit isn't moving. And it's very important that happened because had it not gone in, in all probability the bridge would have failed by now. 
out of sight, out of mind, this underwater strut. But in 2008, a team of divers were sent down to investigate it and have a look, and they came back and said, no, it's absolutely sound, it's doing really well, so we're okay. The valley itself is riddled with geological faults, and in some places there's ground movement that's more rapid than here. So while we know that by the bridge it's only moving two to three millimetres over five years, a little bit further down, just over half a mile further down, in more recent years it was moving as much as an inch a week. Now, this was a seriously dangerous bit of land movement in an area that has been prone to be moving for at least 150 years, and it was caused by the top layer of the land sliding over a fairly well lubricated clay bed so in the last two years, a major underpinning work has been done there. Some 2,200 or so concrete piles have been driven into the bank to pin the top layer back down to bedrock to stop it moving. But had that not been pinned down, had the land continued to move, it could have catastrophically blocked the river. It could have been a sudden movement. And the engineers say that within two hours of the river being blocked, the river level would have risen, backed up from that dam, and at the Iron Bridge itself, it will be within six feet of the top of the crown of the bridge. That means that virtually all the properties in Iron Bridge would have been very, very seriously damaged. And so all the people living in the gorge have evacuation details. They know they're living in a potential flood zone. However, the work was completed recently, spring 2016, and that area of the gorge is now safe and underpinned. The funding was made available because this is now a World Heritage Site. So we believe that the bridge is safe in an area where there's still movement, hopefully for another 200 years. The bridge gradually gives up its secrets. Every time I come here, I seem to discover something I've never seen before. One day, I came down to take a photograph of the base plates by the towpath because I knew that they weren't one solid iron casting. They'd been made in several pieces and holes left between them so the castings were lighter weight and those holes were filled with brick paviors. And I wanted to be able to explain that. Several weeks later, looking at the photographs on the computer, I noticed a couple of damp patches I hadn't ever seen before. And they made me puzzle. They were damp patches in a pattern that suggested they were there on purpose. They turned out to be just behind each of the main vertical castings nearest the riverside. I hadn't noticed them before because when I took the photographs there had been a flood. It had brought up some silt. The ground was damp, partly dried, and most of it had dried a bit more than these odd little patches. So they showed up as damp patches in an otherwise dry base. And I came back and I tapped the area around the patches with a coin and then tapped the patches themselves. And I got a change of note in the tapping. Everything was solid cast iron except where the damp patches were. And it turns out they were holes that went right the way through the casting. These holes are four inches deep. They're about two inches square. And behind each of the five uprights, there's a pair of them. They've never, ever been mentioned in any report, any drawing, any photographs before. What had happened was that over time, they'd been filled with silt 
sand, muck, and when the bridge was repainted, the top surface was painted over and nobody knew they were there. I was very excited. I rushed over to the other bank to see if I could find the same holes on the other side, and there aren't any. I thought, ah, this might tell me something about the process by which the bridge was put up, the order in which things were erected. I began to wonder, did they cast the base plates for this side first with the holes and then decide they didn't need them, so didn't bother for the other side? Or could it be the other way round? Did they put the other side down first and wish they'd put some holes in the castings? I've discussed it with some engineers and somebody's come up with probably a much better solution. They think that you drove spikes down through these holes just before the main arches went up. This side was trapped in one position and the other side could land where it did and if there was slight give, it was okay. It means that absolutely the first uprights to go up have to be on this bank. If you come slightly away from underneath the bridge, maybe 20, 30 feet away, it doesn't matter, on the towpath, either side, upstream or downstream, and look at the arch, it's absolutely evident that it's a very high arch. It's a semicircle of which the halfway mark is made up by the river. So at summer levels, the river gives you a full 180 degrees of arc. That means that you get a full reflection, the circle is reflected in it, and in the right position you see a perfect circle. That's part of the design, that's part of its magic, and why it looks so wonderful. That's the key reason why it's this high. It's also high because that kept the approach roads above the flood levels, that was useful. And the other reason, people say, is because the tall masted boats could go underneath. This is a bit of a red herring, really, because the upstream medieval bridge, Bildwas, only two miles upstream, had only 14-foot clearance. The downstream bridge, the wooden one two miles down, had only 12-foot clearance. But, of course, seven trouts, the seven barges, could drop their masts in a matter of seconds, and they had to on the bridges time and time again. So you didn't need a bridge that was this high, but they did it because it looks good. There's one other weird thing. From this position, if you look up towards the crown of the bridge, but you look to the furthest side of it, so a silhouette against the sky, you'll see a face. I've been all over the bridge when it was scaffolded, and I assure you there isn't a face anywhere there. It's just the coincidence of the architectural details and the way from this particular angle, and only from this angle, they do appear to resemble a face. Locally, people say that's the face of Abraham Darby. I don't buy that. Abraham Darby was a Quaker. And having a portrait painted, having a portrait made in any way, was an unnecessary frivolity. Quakers didn't have portraits done. So this isn't Darby. The other man who was really responsible for work on the bridge, the man who designed all the joints, was Thomas Gregory, foreman pattern maker to Darby. It can't be Gregory either, because he too was a Quaker. And I wonder whether, in fact, if there is meant to be a face there, whether this is Thomas Farnell's Pritchard, who had died in December 1777, and Darby and Gregory are paying a homage to him. To find out more about the Iron Bridge, listen to the companion programme, The Birth of the Bridge, available at www.historywm.com forward slash podcasts 
or at the iTunes Store. Today, the Ironbridge Gorge, at the heart of this UNESCO World Heritage Site, offers 10 museums, providing visitors of all ages with unique access to the story of Britain's industrial history. Learn more at www.ironbridge.org.uk.